Thanks for listening to The Vine's podcast. The Vine is a church in Austin, Texas, with the simple goal of following Jesus together. And we hope this message helps you in doing just that. The scripture reading uh, this Sunday is from Genesis chapter 32, 22 through 31. That night, Jacob got up and took his two wives, his two female servants, and his 11 sons and crossed the ford at the Jabbok. After he had sent them across the stream, he sent over all of his possessions. And so Jacob was left alone, and a man wrestled with him till daybreak. When the man saw that he could not overpower him, he touched the socket of Jacob's hip so that his hip was wrenched as he wrestled with the man. Then the man said, let me go for it's daybreak. But Jacob replied, I will not let you go unless you bless me. The man asked him, what is your name? Jacob he answered. Then the man said, your name will no longer be Jacob, but Israel, because you have struggled with God and with humans and have overcome. Jacob said, please tell me your name. But he replied, why do you ask my name? And then he blessed him there. So Jacob called the place Peniel, saying, it is because I saw God face to face, and yet my life was spared. The sun rose above him as he passed Peniel, and he was limping because of his hip. This is the word of the Lord. Well, this is our second week in our monument series. Our, it's a five-week series for the month of October. We're studying different monuments in the Old Testament, and we come at this monument today. The reality is we live in a place where there's monuments all around Austin, and I want to show you a uh, monument now. Can anyone uh, share what the name of this monument is? Who said that over there? Who's the first one? Here you go, Eric. Eric Dees and Folk right there gets a special shirt for that. Yes, that is the Treaty Oak Tree, which we probably, if you don't know, who, who doesn't know what, that, what the Treaty Oak is? Raise their hand. No, no shame. You drive by the Treaty Oak probably all the time. This is a monument for many in Austin. The Treaty Oak is a very special tree because we live in Austin and we have a lot of trees in that uh, there's a lot of history in this place. Treaty Oak is at Baylor and 5th Street, so right there next to Whole Foods downtown. And arborists believe that this tree is over 500 years old. And just to let you know, that's a long time. Like our country is 241 years old. This tree has it beat just by a couple. This tree was used by Native American uh, tribes as a place uh, where they would launch their war and their peace uh, parties would be launched at that tree. At this tree in 1830, Stephen F. Austin met the leader of the Native Americans to negotiate and sign a treaty right there to, uh, to, to sign Texas's first boundary, boundary treaty. Sam Houston later would go to that tree after being kicked out of the Capitol at the very beginning of the Civil War. This treaty, uh, this tree has been a monument of, of peace and of conflict. It was deepened in 1989 when a man named Paul Colin, he went to this tree and poisoned it. And it became, for whatever reason, maybe there's not a lot of stuff going on in the news cycle, it became a nationwide story, this famous tree that was poisoned. And a guy named Ross Perot, if we remember Ross Perot, he wrote, wrote a blank check, do whatever you can to save the tree. And uh, just to let you all know how serious we are, we are about trees, Paul Cullen was sentenced to nine years in prison because of his poisoning of this tree. And if you drive by today, Treaty Oak is still there. It's recovered and it's thriving. 
but it's lopsided on one side because of what happened to it. So it's a sign and a symbol of a monument that has both pain and strength. It has both loss and victory. And for many of us, our monuments are the same. And it's just standing there, right next to California Closet and Jackson Ruiz downtown. It's a monument for some of our ladies. Uh, The monuments are all around us. What is interesting to me are these monuments uh, we forget about, we don't know about, we're blind to, yet they are there. And our scripture passages share some similar themes for us about these monuments that are around us that's, that carry stories and messages of peace and of conflict, of strife and victory. If there's any complicated family, it is the one in which we are hearing about today. We're hearing about the relationship between Jacob and Esau. Just a little background. Last week we talked about Abraham. Abraham had a son named Isaac, and Isaac and Rebekah had twins, Esau and Jacob. And they were excited about this because these children came late in life. And so Rebekah gave birth first to uh, her firstborn child, and they looked at him, and he was incredibly hairy. And so they named him Esau, which means hairy. There's a reason why you don't meet many babies named Esau now. Uh, No one wants to be named as that. And then the second child was born, and he was born reaching out, grabbing towards his brother's heel. And they looked at him, and they named him Jacob, which meant at the heel. It also means something like a, a supplanter, someone who tries to upend someone and replace someone. So Jacob also, that name could even be used Uh, as uh, transcribed as someone who deceives. And so if you were to read this story or watch this movie, you'd look at this opening scene of these two brothers, the hairy one and the deceiver, and you kind of look at this and go, this is not going to go well. And it didn't. It was a a very conflicted relationship. Uh, One of the reasons why is this is Parenting 101, by the way, uh, is that Isaac and Rebekah preferred one child over the other. So Isaac loved Esau, and Rebekah loved Jacob. And ultimately, this led to a, mom, a moment later on where it's a, it just kind of culminated here when at, his, at this deathbed, when Isaac was about to die, he was about to give the final blessing to his older son Esau, but Esau was out of the house. And so Rebekah encouraged Jacob to dress up like his brother, And so uh, he got dressed up. His father was blind and old, and so he got dressed up as his brother, which included, as you might guess, a lot of hair. And so he went to his brother, and his father, his his father, he went to his father, and his father is feeling his arm and going, "Is this Esau?" And Jacob lied to him. One of the last encounters he had with with his father was that of deception, and so the father gave. Jacob, Esau's blessing. Later on, when Esau came in and and heard of this, he was irate and said, isn't Jacob living up to his name? And then he swore once his father was dead, he would kill him, that that Esau would kill Jacob. And at this, Rebekah pleaded with her son, her beloved son, you need to run for your life. And so Jacob, the one for which God chooses to to continue the story, and God seems to have really weird choice in who to choose to tell his story through. 
Then Jacob flees for his life and begins in a new land, a foreign land, all over. And we find here in this story a powerful monument. After he started off his life, 20 years go by. 20 years go by with this conflicted relationship, with this, just this, this severed relationship. 20 years go by, and finally Jacob hears, believes that it's time for him to go home. And so he starts turning his way towards home, and then he hears that Esau is coming to meet him. This could be good, could be bad. And then he hears that Esau has also brought 400 men with him. Probably bad. Jacob is hearing this and is going, ugh. And so he sends towards his brother, he sends towards Esau a huge gift. Maybe by receiving this gift of, that maybe he would be appeased and not try to kill me. And so he sends this huge gift. And then he looks at the rest of his tribe that he created and said, all right, we need to break into two different parts and begin walking because perhaps he won't be able to kill us both. And then after that, we find ourselves in the scripture reading today. In verse 22, that night Jacob got up and took his two wives and his two female servants and his 11 sons and crossed the ford of Jabbok. And, there, and after he had sent them across the stream, he sent over all his possessions. This is also crash course in marriage 101. Don't have two wives. It's just a bad idea. An interesting note about this verse is, is uh, this word Jabbok right here. It means to empty, to be emptied. And you could imagine that the reason why this, this name was given is because the stream was emptying into the Jordan River. But there's a deeper meaning going on here. In the life of Jacob, he was being emptied. Notice that he had sent all of, all of his possessions, his family, everything that he had built up for 20 years, just sent him ahead of him. And he's left there alone. Can you imagine liquidating your whole life, putting everything you own on a U-Haul with your two beloved wives, and sending this all to the only person who's sworn to kill you? Do you feel, do you think that he felt exposed and vulnerable and emptied? But it's in this place of being emptied where God shows up and does something incredible. You might be in a place right now in your life where you feel emptied where you feel like you have just released a whole lot of things. You've surrendered a lot that you've built up, a lot that you held on to, a lot of your dreams, and you have just surrendered it. I just want to let you know that that's fertile ground for God to do some extraordinary work, just as he did here. And so we find here, that night, while Jacob was preparing for the unknown, something mysterious had happened. Verse 24, so Jacob was left alone, and a man wrestled with him until daybreak. Really? A wrestling match? Really? Is that what's going on here? All the way from night till daybreak. Such a peculiar thing. Verse 25, when the man saw that he could not overpower him... Um, he touched the socket of Jacob's hip so that his hip was wrenched as he wrestled with the man. Unfair advantage. Then the man said, let me go for it is daybreak. But Jacob replied, I will not let you go unless you bless me. And the man asked him, what is your name? I have to wonder if this man already knew Jacob's name. If this man wanted Jacob to say what his name was. What is your name? And Jacob, he answered, who are you? 
I'm Jacob. I'm the deceiver. I'm the one that upends. And then the man said in verse 28, Your name will no longer be Jacob, but Israel, because you have struggled with God and with humans and have overcome. What a wonderful, bizarre experience this must have been. One of the most confusing things I think about this story is who in the world is Jacob wrestling with? Was it a man? Was it an angel? Was it God? A lot of ink has been spilled over this passage, over that question. And it's so peculiar because in verses 24 through 27, the scripture says he was wrestling with a man, and then something shifts in verse 28, and then all of a sudden it's God. So who is it? I think the wisdom of scripture, it it is begging us to ask the question. Scripture is not giving us an answer, it's giving us a question, something that we have to wrestle with. Who in the world is wrestling with Jacob? Who in the world might we wrestle with? It's leading us to an idea of perhaps maybe there's mystery in who this is, but maybe it is both. In verse 28, it says this. It says, your name is now Israel because you have struggled or wrestled with God and with humans and have overcome. The uh, person that we have done this series with, a Jewish scholar by the name of Sandy Crest, he shared with me with a flicker of joy in his eyes a, a belief in the Hebrew tradition, a thought within the Jewish tradition of who this was. Was it a man? Was it God? Uh, oftentimes, one of the beliefs is, could it even be Esau that was wrestling with Jacob? Once he saw that Jacob was alone, might even Esau wait till nighttime, sneak in there, and wrestle with him? Or... Could it be God wrestling with Jacob on behalf of Esau? Perhaps God was looking at this opportunity, saying, Jacob, you're not ready to be reconciled with your brother. You have to learn how to wrestle. Because Jacob, he didn't learn to wrestle. We see what he did in the past. He was was untruthful. He was deceiver. When things got difficult, he just picked up and left. And maybe God is saying, before you are ready to see your brother, you need to learn to wrestle with him. And this, what builds this argument even more so is what happens in the very next verse. Well, we remember in verse uh, 31, the very end of this chapter, uh, the sun rose above Jacob, now Israel, as he passed this place called PNL, and he was limping because of his hip. In the very next verse, in the very next chapter, Jacob looked up and there was Esau. As the sun was rising above, all of a sudden, there he could see Esau perhaps in a different light. And I don't know exactly what's happening in this passage, what's going on here, but I think Scripture is trying to lead us towards a thought that God comes to us in many, many different ways. And oftentimes, the different ways are surprising. But one of the ways that we see how God comes to us is in the most challenging relationships in our life. And none of us want it. (laughs) The way in which God comes to us oftentimes is the most challenging, difficult, hardest relationships. It is because in these difficult relationships, we are uniquely formed. We have the potential of being uniquely formed into growing into the person that God's created us to be. A couple years ago, I went to a spiritual director, which is kind of like a counselor, and uh, we were beginning our conversation. We, we weren't sure where to start. And so um, 
he asked me, he said, so tell me about the most difficult relationship in your life right now. I was like, okay, that's an interesting place to start. So I just start sharing about this relationship. And then he goes, is there anyone that this relationship reminds you of uh, from your upbringing? And immediately I was like, yes. Like perfectly mirrored uh, conflicts, perfectly mirrored issues that I'm having to work through. And he said something to me that I absolutely hated to hear. He said, God will continue to send more people like this in your life until you have learned what you need to learn. And I said, no thank you. (laughs) But as a friend once told me, God often comes to us in the form of our life. What is meant by this is God, God uses our life, uses the people in our life to help form us, to shape us into being a better follower of Jesus. And in that, if we are willing to be teachable, if we are willing to receive life as your teacher, we will be formed. If we're really willing to see what God is doing in my life to to form me, rather than me just being uh, a byproduct of life, of me seeing life as my teacher, I can be formed by all things. This is how God redeems all of life, is that God can teach us if we're willing to learn. One of the things that we have as a staff that we talk about are certain guardrails, just kind of values that we try to live by. One of those guardrails is this, that God loves a teachable spirit. What this means is that are we willing to be teachable in this life? Because God loves to teach us, loves to, to meet, meet with us, to, to shape us. This doesn't mean that other people are always right in our life, but it does mean that God can use people and situations and experiences to shape you, to form you. Right now, God is using my kids to teach me about patience and gentleness. Right now, I have other relationships that are teaching me what does it mean to be an encourager. And I'm positive, absolutely, 100% positive, that God is using me in a lot of different people's lives to teach them really unbearable, annoying lessons. I'm sure about it. But God comes to us in the form of our life, and Jesus warned us about this. One of the times that Jesus met with his disciples, and he said, you want to know where I am? Find the people who are hungry. Find the people who are in prison, the people who are sick. Find the people who are naked, and there you will see me. God shows up in surprising ways in our life. So how do we learn from these hard relationships? Great, we know that God is there. How do we learn from them? We learn from them through wrestling. We have to learn through wrestling. And think about what wrestling is. Wrestling is grappling. It's intimacy. It's closeness. It's rolling around on the ground. It's figuring things out. And I think in our day and age, we don't know how to wrestle. In our modern society, we often don't know how to wrestle. Instead, we throw grenades over the wall into the other camp, whoever they might be. We will just send off emails saying the things that we would never say face-to-face, but we feel like we can because it's just on an email. We, we clump people into categories and judge them without ever getting to know them. Or when there's offenses and difficulty, we pull the bail cord and we just get out. We don't wrestle. And I think what we find in this passage is God is saying there is reconciliation and redemption in wrestling. 
How often do we go to people that we really disagree with, that we really have a hard time with, and look at them in the eye and say, will you help me understand why you see this world the way you do? Can you help me just understand how you see this thing, this world, this issue the way you do? How often do we go to people and say, you really offended me when you did this. Can we talk about it? How often do we stay and grapple and wrestle with one another? Our inability to wrestle cuts our ability to heal. And Jacob, he needed to learn to wrestle. And so, we miss out on monuments like this. What is the monument in this story? What is the monument in this story? There's two different monuments that the, the, the story closes with. The first monument is the monument of the name. The man said, your name is no longer Jacob, but Israel, because you have struggled with God and with humans and have overcome. Think about this. Jacob was renamed Israel by God, uh, which means to struggle with God. God could have renamed Jacob to be whatever name he wanted to. And why this is significant is for all of time, God's people would be marked by this name Israel. Even now, we have the nation of Israel. And God could have chosen any sort of name, like people of peace, or like bearers of hope, or like fountain of joy. Instead, God says, I want these people to be named, you have struggled with God. What a weird name. That these people for all of time will be marked by struggling, grappling with God. It tells us something. If we take seriously a life with God, we should expect a wrestling match with him. If we take seriously a life with God, we should expect to struggle with God. And just like many of us don't wrestle in our relationships, many of us don't know how to wrestle with God. Perhaps it's because we're afraid to do this with God. Or we just simply don't have that view of God. We just think God wants all of our happy praise. Meanwhile, we have a lot of things beneath the surface. And the reality is that God wants all of you, all of you, your frustration, your struggle, your hard questions, your doubt. God wants you to wrestle with him, to grapple with him, to roll around on the ground. And to have that kind of nearness and closeness with them. Did you know in the book of Psalms, all of these songs are, are, is like the hymn book for the nation of Israel. Do you know in all the Psalms, there's a, a whole type of Psalm called the Psalms of Lament. These are Psalms within, within your scripture, your holy scripture, that have questions like, God, where are you? Where have you been? How come you bless my enemies and you torture me? These are psalms of lament. They're psalms of wrestling, but they're psalms of intimacy. An intimacy that I think we need to learn how to have with God. Because it's in that intimacy, all of a sudden, a new name is forged. Your name is no longer deceiver. It's no longer upender. It is Israel. Because wrestling is an act of nearness. It's grabbing on to God and saying, I'm not letting go of you until this feels like a blessing. I'm going to hold on to you until this wrestling match turns into a blessing. The funny thing is oftentimes the blessing that God gives us is a different version of a blessing than what we want. And that's the second monument in this passage. The second monument is the limp. 
Jacob holds on to God and says, I want you to bless me. And he says, okay, here's your blessing, a limp, for the rest of your life. For the rest of life, Jacob, now Israel, would be different. He has a new name, and he will walk differently. He will have to reintroduce himself to people, and he will have to explain the rest of his life, why is he walking with a limp? And I think, I think, years later, when he would be limping around, and people say, how did you get that limp? How did your father get his limp? He would say, because I wrestled with God, and I remember it as intimacy. I remember it as nearness. There is a redemption in that. There's aroma of intimacy in that. For many of us, when we look back in our life, when we had difficult chapters, when we had nights like Jacob did, when we were wrestling with God, and we have from the gut prayers that we're praying from, we have anger and doubt, and we spend the whole night wrestling with God, sometimes for us, we look back at this years later and go, I also remember nearness with God. I also remember intimacy. I had a season of my life personally where I had such painful loss and sorrow that I remember there were seasons where I would just wrestle with God. One moment in particular where I just, I couldn't even say the words. I just lifted my hands up to, to heaven. I go, God, you're getting all of it. You're getting all of my questions. You're getting all of my pain, getting all of my frustration. And I just sat there like this for like 15 minutes. Just, okay, you're getting that too. You're getting that too. And the interesting thing is, I look back though, and I remember closeness. In that season of my life, I received a limp that I will walk with the rest of my life. But I have found so much redemption because God showed up. God was not afraid to be wrestled with. And in that wrestling, and in that limp, I found healing. You want to know how? The way of Jesus is that there's healing through the limp. There's healing through the wounds. It is in the limping, it is in the scars that we find healing. Isaiah 53, 5 shared a prophecy, a word about Jesus before Jesus came. And this prophecy warned us about who Jesus would be, that by his wounds we are healed. It is through the woundedness of Jesus that our limps and our scars and our bruises find healing because it doesn't have the final say. Our wounded Savior has the final say. God is not a stranger to pain. God is not afraid to wrestle. I have potentially a heretical conviction that I've learned from that pit of despair that I couldn't trust or love God had he not been willing to enter into sorrow and to suffer with us. I would fear God, but I don't know if I would love him. But it is in the wounds of Jesus we find a companion through the limps, through the hard nights, through the wrestling matches, through the pain and the wounds. We find a wounded Savior who says, come and follow me, and I will actually lead you out of this. doesn't mean I'm going to take it all away, but it means that you will find healing. That Jesus went to the deepest suffering and he stood there in our place to show us the truest monuments. To show us the truest monuments of the cross and the empty tomb. So that we know that all of our wounds, all of our scars, and all of our limps might lead us there. 
so that we can be restored. This is your monument today. Perhaps when you look at this rock this week, you're going to think of the monument of Jacob's limp, of this name change. You're going to think about the reconciled relationships in your past and how God showed up. Or maybe this for you is your reminder of the unreconciled relationship that you have. And before you go to this person, you might have to wrestle this out with God. Or maybe this monument for you will remind you of the limp or the wounds from your past. And even though you would never go back there, you're grateful for that intimacy. And perhaps this monument is for you this week, the reminder that you right now are wrestling with God. You have been emptied. But God promises to make you whole. My encouragement this week is walk with this monument. Walk with your wounded Savior. Wrestle with him. And remember that in doing so, you're seeing the face of God. 